Take your Bible in whatever form you have it, either a paper Bible or smart device, tablet. Turn to Ezra chapter 1. We started a journey through uh, the book of Ezra this last Sunday, and uh, we are continuing that. The more I get into it, the more I see how relevant it is to us and where we are uh, in our world today. And I want you to notice the title, the message today from either the screen or your worship guide that's in front of you. We'll, we, we will be referring to that as we work through this. Uh, the title of the sermon is, Welcome to a Well-Run World. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but first let me read from, um, from Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Follow along, and then I will pray, and we're going to pray about several things that we need to put uh, in front of us uh, this morning. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let them go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." Father, as we begin our time today, I thank you that we can look to your word for guidance. Uh, I, I always love it, Lord, when what we preach is exactly the same as what we sing and what we pray. It's all from your word, and Lord, how it dovetails together and reminds us that you do have a plan, that you do have a purpose, and that you're working that plan and purpose for your glory and for our good. And God, that, that means that you're even working that part of your plan for uh, the people in Haiti and uh, brothers and sisters that some of us know there that we've worked alongside of, that we've labored alongside of. And so we pray for that nation. We pray for the people who have been killed in the earthquake, for those who have survived and have uh, incredible injuries. Lord, we, we can't even hardly imagine what that is like and going to look like in the days ahead for the rescue and recovery efforts, but we pray that your grace would be upon those who are involved in that. And as you remind us in your word, these are not greater sender, sinners than us all, but it is an opportunity to see your goodness in the gospel and to repent and turn to Christ. I pray that, that nation, the people of that nation, would do so. And Lord, in all of the things that are working around the world, uh, too numerous to even mention, uh, Lord, we lift those up. Now, help us, 
oh God, as we work through this, uh, really the beginning part of the story of of uh, Zerubbabel and how he goes back and rebuilds the temple and starts a process leading to the end of uh, the Old Testament time in Nehemiah. So, Lord, we thank you for that, and we bless your holy name. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I said it in my prayer. I'm going to ask it as a question. Do you... Try to personalize this, folks. Do you believe that God has a plan? Do you? Now, theologically, we believe that. And and by the end of the sermon, I hope that we're going to reach some application that will help you to personalize that and internalize that. I want to read to you and with you, if you take your worship guide, that very first quote, which is from the Philadelphia Confession of Faith in 1742, uh, out of the uh, chapter 3 of God's decree. It's, It's in Old English, okay? That's the way they talked in 1742. We don't talk like that, but try your best to follow along because it gives us some incredible insight. And, uh, it says it like this. I think it summarizes that and uh, what we've just asked the, the question about, and it gives you some verses as well. Don't look those up right now. Wait till you get home. But listen to what the writers of the Confession of Faith had to say about God's plan. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, All things whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath any fellowship with any sin therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things in power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And that is the answer to the question that I just posed to you, and that is the answer to what we're going to look at today. Welcome to a well-run world. Now, here's what I want to do for you. For you history buffs, you're going to love this, all right? For those not so much inclined to history, just bear with it, okay? But we need to set Ezra in the context of of biblical history. We're not going to talk about world history. And in order to do that, I have put this chart on the overhead, which all of you can read, correct? No, you can't. So what I did was break down the chart. Now, here's what I want to do. Some of you might have been surprised if you listened to what I was praying a minute ago to realize that Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah come at the close of the, the Old Testament history. Okay? After, after Nehemiah is done, that's it. And Malachi was the last prophet. We'll see this in just a minute. So this is not completely 100% accurate. It was the best I could come up with. And so I want to fill in some blanks for you. Outline of biblical history. Here we go. Are you ready? Creation. When did creation happen? In the beginning. Thank you. According to Sun, it happened in the year 4004 B.C. I personally 
subscribe to a young earth theory, so that's fine with me. Then we fast forward. 2,000 years and 12 chapters of Genesis. 2,000 years, and the next big event is the calling out of Abraham in chapter 2. Here was this pagan guy called out by God and given a promise. And here's, here's that first use of the word, the word promise. And God's faithful to his promises. We're going to see this in a minute in, in the book of, of Ezra, chapter 1. And he promised him, you will become a great nation. And what happened? He did become a great nation. The children of Israel, he had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, but the promise came through Jacob. And then he was, he was Israel. His name was changed. Then he had 12 sons, sons, and they became the nation of Israel. And then we find as we weave our way through that Israel was taken into captivity. You remember the story in Egypt. They were brought out of Egypt, the Exodus. And then there were really three kings. Uh, it says to David, but there was a king that preceded him. Who was it? Saul. That's right. So there were three kings, now watch this, that presided over, that ruled over a united kingdom of Israel. It was never called that. But they were united during the reigns of these three kings. And then something happened when Solomon died. And, you know, he, he was very, very wise, except at the end of his life, he kind of blew it, got into some things. I, I, I just had the sneaking suspicion that it impacted his son, who was named Rehoboam. I've labored over to whether or not to refer to him uh, with, with the original thought that came to my mind. Rehoboam, the idiot king. Now, really, I don't mean to just, just talk smack here. But Rehoboam, I, really, he, the people came to him and said, look, your dad was pretty hard on, on us in terms of, of, of the work schedule and all the rest of that. And if you will make our work just a little bit lighter, we will follow you anywhere you want to go. Lesson for young people, young leaders. What did he do? He went to his older counselors and he said, hey, this is what the people have said. What do you think I ought to do? The older counselors said, listen to them. Listen to them and they will follow you anywhere. So what did Rehoboam, the foolish king, okay, do? He went to his peers who were not as seasoned as the older counselors were, and they didn't give him good advice. They said, no, 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 no. They've come to you seeking relief. You tell them you're going to make it harder. In fact, you tell them that your little finger is going to be thicker than Solomon, your dad's thigh. You tell them that they were scourged with whips under your dad, Solomon. You tell them that you're going to scourge them with scorpions. What did Rehoboam do? Took the counsel of the younger counselors, went back and told them. They said, we're not going to have any of this. They went to their tents, and they called a guy that was a servant of Solomon named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, let's move on to the next part of that, to the division of the kingdom. Some of the, you, you know this. But the kingdom was divided into two parts. It was the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes with the Levites thrown in because they didn't possess any land. 
And here is listed, the, the, listed some of the prophets, not all of the kings. Now, just suffice it to say, look over on, on the, the Israel side with all of the prophets over there. Israel, get this, never had a good king. They were all wicked. In fact, in the, it, for the most part, it says that they followed after the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, on the Judah side, they had some good kings. They had 11 wicked kings, and they had eight good kings. But I want you to notice something that we're going to come to in the message today. I want you to look at, by the way, I think that we have some of these. Okay, we do have some of these on the welcome desk. You're welcome to get them. Not right now. But, but look at that, and, and when you do, circle Isaiah and Jeremiah. We haven't come to Cyrus, king of Persia, that we just mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. This is important because both Isaiah and Jeremiah make prophecies about Cyrus. So they go on through, and, and finally God gets fed up with Israel, 721 B.C. or thereabout. Pull, or his other name was Tiglath-Pileser. You see why he stuck with pull. Okay. He invaded Israel, took them away into captivity into Syria. 115 years or so after that, God said, I have come to you with prophets over and over again. We saw this last week in the, the last chapter of Second Chronicles where God sent prophet after prophet and they rejected them. And so they were carried away into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, into captivity where they stayed for 70 years. Now, we'll, in future sermons, we're going to talk about what that 70 years was all about. But you need to see it was 70 years. So after, after 70 years, this is where Ezra 1-1 comes into play the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, it says Ezra and Nehemiah, there were two other characters that I want you to write on your outline because I, I think this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at all of them, of course, in order. The first character is named Zerubbabel. We won't get to him for a week or so. And he leads the nation of Israel out in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, and they rebuild the temple according to the edict of Cyrus, king of Persia. And then after chapter 6, there's a break for 60 years. Guess what fits into that break? It's really fascinating. Esther, who's raised up as a savior of her people, and then it resumes in chapter 7 with Ezra coming on the scene, then we move to Nehemiah, and at the end of Nehemiah, you see Malachi comes into play there. That's it for 400 years. 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament when God was silent. There, there was no revelation. There was no word. And then we get to the birth of Jesus Christ. By the way, Remember, from Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years. From Jesus to his, well, what's the next big event on biblical history calendar? What, what, what is the next big thing that's going to happen? We studied about it in 2 Thessalonians. 
Christ's return. Oh, it's been around 2,000 years. I am not a prophet, I told you that, but that's why we need to be ready. In fact, well, I'll just wait till I get there. We see some other prophets, but apostles and early church, end of the New Testament uh, era, and the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. That's the timeline. All right, let's get into Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and uh, see what it says. We're going to break it down, as you see on your outline, with this particular, we're going to ask some questions. First of all, who are the main characters of this passage? And as we walk through the four main characters, who is the main character? Who's the lead character? All right, we're just going to look at the Scripture. And here are the characters in this passage of Scripture, the first three verses. First one is Cyrus, king of Persia. All right? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth. Now, I I want you to get a feel for this. Ezra was probably one of the most powerful men ever to live, okay? For sure, he was the most powerful man living in his day. Cyrus, the great Cyrus, king of Persia. We know that he was a pagan king. This is important. Is Cyrus the main character of this passage of Scripture? No. We'll get to the the last one is the one who is the main character. But I want you to see this. God has no trouble accomplishing his plan and purpose even through a pagan king. How do I know that Cyrus was a pagan king? It says it right here in Isaiah. Thus says the Lord. Now watch this. How many years before Cyrus, before Ezra 1.1, did Isaiah prophesy this? A hundred and sixty years. No, no, wait, 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 stop. I thought at least I would hear a, a gasp or a Wow. See, there are a lot of biblical commentators who, uh, no, 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 that didn't happen. It was a guy living at the time of Cyrus. He inserted it in there because there's no such thing as God predicting the future. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. But this is, this is look at what God does, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. I call you by name. This is God speaking to Cyrus. I name you. I equip you though you do not know me. Now, Cyrus says some really grand things about God. Just a brief application, a person can talk a lot of great things about God and never really know him. So Cyrus, a pagan king used by God. He's the first character. Second character, Jeremiah. Now, we mentioned Isaiah. We'll also talk about him. In the first year, you, we've already read this, but, but here's the section I want you to look at. This is so, everything is structured for a reason. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, parentheses, that, 
Because God wanted them to know this, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. You know, I, I, I've just wondered what would it feel like for me to be a Jew living in Babylon in 539 B.C.? And I've lived there for 70 years. I've become pretty comfortable. You know, I, Jeremiah said, go ahead and build houses and plant vineyards and give your children in, in marriage and, and just make your home there and pray for the country in which you're exiled. And so I've done that. But all the while in the back of my mind, I have been wondering about this prophecy. We're going to look at specifically at that of Jeremiah, that the word of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And here's where he said it. This is what he was referring to in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. He said that while they were in Judah. So here I am a Jew, and I've been looking at this and looking at the... I've read the scroll of, of Jeremiah and wondering, because this new king has ascended, wondering, is this the time? Is this the time when we get to go home? And sure enough, it was. Now, remember, I said about Isaiah, and, and here's another one. Isaiah actually uses the name Cyrus calls him his shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Jeremiah spoke a hundred years before Ezra 1-1, the decree of Cyrus, and Isaiah 160 years before that. Do, I, even as I ask this, I know the answer to this. Do you believe in biblical prophecy? If you don't, you're going to have to take a pair of scissors and cut a lot out of your Bible. Did you know that in the Old Testament, this numbering is going to be different, but by best estimates in the Old Testament, there are 1,239 prophecies. In the New Testament, there are 579 prophecies. That's a grand total in the Bible, the Word of God, of 1,817 pro prophecies that we find in the Bible. Now, let me ask you a question. Of those prophecies up until now that were prophesied, how many have been fulfilled? I heard it. Say it louder. All of them, of the prophecies that were given that have to do with right now, how many are being fulfilled? All of them. Are there prophecies that are still future? We talked about one in 2 Thessalonians, the man of desolation. He hasn't come on the scene yet that we know of. Will that prophecy be fulfilled how many of the prophecies, in other words, and this is one of those no-brainers, but we need to pack it down. How many prophecies in the Scriptures either have been, are being, or will be fulfilled? That's right. 
Third character, the exiled Jews. I, I really look forward to getting to this. There, there, there's some good application. The exiled Jews, including Zerubbabel, we'll see that in chapter 2. But here's what the decree said, whoever is among you of all his people. Living in Babylon, at that time it's estimated that there were a million Jews. Yes, a million Jews living in Babylon. Of that number, 42,360 said yes and went back to rebuild the temple. That means that 957,640 remained in Babylon. And by the way, that's where the story of Esther comes in. Because Satan is out to destroy the people of God. And he wanted to do it through Haman. But God raised Esther up for such a time as that. Last thing. Okay, here's the last character. The Lord, the God of heaven, Ezra 1.1. It might not surprise you that he is the main character. Not only of Ezra, but the entire Bible. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord of the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I don't know all that that looked like, but listen to me. Cyrus was not a puppet. Okay? He didn't go into neutral and God made him do it. There's some people who think that. This was not a Jedi mind trick. These are not the robots you're looking for. This was God sovereignly moving in the heart of an unbeliever, a pagan king, so that that believer would come to a place where he made that decision of his own will. Now, here's something else that I want you to see that you, it's not up there, but but I kind of hesitated when I read it a few minutes ago. God stirred Ezra's, excuse me, Cyrus's heart. Okay, you following me? I might have mixed up the names. Stirred Cyrus's heart to do two things. First was to speak the proclamation so that the people would go back. And if you remember back, and you can look back at your own verse right there in the Bible, in your Bible, it says, and also to write it down. Why was it important? for that prophecy or for that edict to be written down. Because later on, we're going to see that the work was stopped. It was halted, and they went back under Darius, long after Cyrus, they went back and they looked at what was written so that the work of God could be completed. Now, I I just, I don't know about you, but I just think God doing this verifies that he has a plan. Let's just bring it in closer. If he has a plan for the Jews, his people then, do you think he has a plan for us today? Do you think, to bring it in closer, do you think he has a plan for you? And do you think God is big enough to fulfill his plan for you? Okay, let's look at the next thing. What is the theme of this passage then, growing out of this? 
although the word sovereignty is never used, God is sovereign. He is the sovereign creator of all that exists. He is supreme. He has no rivals. I, I listen to people today who are speaking about things happening in our world. Christians, almost as if God does have rivals. God is supreme over everything and everyone. Now, let's just look. We looked at this last week. You need to write this down. Here's how sovereign he is. The most powerful person on earth, the king's heart, is like what? A stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And that just says so much for you and for me in today's world and perhaps in your own family situation. So let's just look at a couple of verses. Boom, boom, boom. Three verses. I want you to have some ammunition for your own thinking about who God is and how sovereign He is. How much does God control? How much is He over? Is there anything left out? What about viruses? What about earthquakes? I wrote that in this morning. By the way, are earthquakes predicted to happen? The last days? Okay. What about climate change? Hmm. What about fires that are broken out all over the world? Winds, rains, droughts, floods, animals, atoms? The Bible says this in Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. And then He takes the broad sweep of creation in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Without question, God's sovereignty is limitless. If He created it, He owns it. Second verse that I want you to see, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. So when we come to the end of time, which, which I personally believe is soon. Now, it doesn't have to be, but I personally believe that it is. But he has already ordained it from the beginning. It's what it says here. And from ancient times, things which have not yet done, been done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, what about powerful leaders today? What about Vladimir Putin? Xi Jinping. Our current administration. Here's what Daniel said. Again, th this was uh, a pagan king, but he said some really true words. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generations to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
God is never called in Scripture pretty high. It's like the commercial. I really think it's cute. Pretty sure. God is not called pretty high. He's not called higher than most. He's called most high. And so the question is, can his purpose be halted for people or nations or leaders or angels or demons? Can it be stopped? Okay, now here's a question that I want you to really think about, just kind of insert here. If it can't be stopped, then do we need to spend a lot of time trying to stop things that could be a part of his plan and purpose, even if we don't understand them, even if they are bad? Think about that. Did that make sense, what I just said? We'll come back to this. Was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ a part of God's plan? Did Peter try to help God out by saying, I'm going to stop this? Who was he siding with when he said that? Peter, this, this is my father's plan. You're siding with Satan and trying to get this thing to stop. This is, this is what I came to do. Just a word. Okay, let's look at an illustration for God's sovereignty. Can we? Uh, there are a lot of them. I, I think of Joseph. I almost did Joseph. Uh, I want you to look at the title again uh, because it has everything to do with what we're talking about. Welcome to a well-run world. I know that I preached about, you know, I preached out of the book of Job a long time ago, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to refer back to Job. Okay. Do you think Job would have said about his world that it was a well-run world? What do you think? Well, yes, especially in the first part of it. First five verses, things are as they should be. Now listen, things are as they should be. He's on top of the world. He's the greatest man living at that time, and he fears God. He walks in his ways. He prays for his kids. And then things fall apart. I look back at my notes, and I think this is accurate because of uh, the way it, it says it. Within at least a day and maybe within an hour, Everything that Job had, except for his health, was stripped away. One thing happened. Boom, it says, and immediately a servant came. Boom, another servant came. And by the end of that time, he, was, he went from the greatest man to the most destitute man in that part of the world. And that was before even his health was taken away. Is that unsettling to think of what happened to Job? It might be even more unsettling to see his response. Here's what he did. He said in the verses preceding this, it says that he tore his robe and he knelt down. Why did he kneel down? 
Have you ever seen somebody that has been given some incredibly bad news? And, and the worst news, the worst news would be your child has died. Or your husband has died. It's not unusual for them to f- literally fall on their knees. Job fell on his knees and he was grieving, but the Bible specifically says he fell on his knees to worship. And he said these words. Now, are these just words of a mind that has been numbed by what's happened to him? Is, is he kind of, do you think that, that Job was just deranged? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and I'm going to worship the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know, Satan was after him, like he's after you. Really, with whatever is happening in your life, he's after you to get you to say that God is not sovereign and glorious no matter what's happening. And that's what he was doing with Job. Well, was he deranged because of the pain? Well, the author doesn't think so, and neither does God. In all this, Job did not sin or accuse God of wrong. You see, it's all about your worldview. It's all about your worldview. And and there are people who will tell you, I'm not going to believe in a world like that. You know, I... I've asked people, if you're not going to believe in a world like that, what kind of a world do you believe in? What are your choices? Because you're not going to get away from the pain of loss. If you don't believe there's no master plan, just random choices or chance or chaos, or or maybe dualism where it's just opposite but equal Forces, good and evil, yin and yang, Star Wars, the good force against the bad force. There's no hope in that either, and that's why Job's wife later came alongside of him and said, just curse God and die. And without the hope that God gives to us, then basically all we can do is just grit our teeth and hang on, but we don't have to do that. Here's the last point that I want you to see. And I use this word. I had, I had another word in there. How does apprehending the Bible's teaching about God's sovereignty impact you? The first word I had in there was understanding. But it goes beyond understanding. It, it's, it's not just taking into your mind. It's apprehending. It's letting it become a part of who you are so that you can have a worldview in which there is plan, in which there is a purpose. Look at the quote from Charles Spurgeon. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty 
has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend to than than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. So what do you think? Is it possible for you, for, for people, to look at that Come away like Job did with the attitude that everything is by him and for him. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything, even bad things, even evil things. He's not the author of sin. We've already seen that. Let me give you two verses that put these two things together. Again, I go back to the crucifixion of Christ. No doubt the most sinful, single sinful act ever perpetrated by human beings. Two verses very clearly tell us that while man was responsible, it was a part of God's plan. This Jesus... Peter said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then later on, the church gets into the act. And this is the body of Christ, the church, the early church saying this in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. One more quote right there in the middle of the quotes by R.C. Sproul. This is how much we need to believe in the sovereignty of God, in His plan, in His purpose. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free from God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. I I don't take lightly these things that I'm sharing with you today. And I know some of you have experienced pain that I never have experienced. And Job did. Some of you have touched on some of the sufferings of that. And here is one of the great verses that I end with, at least for the, the, the verses part of it. And just an encouragement to you. Would, would you say this verse with me from the screen? And we know, stop there. Does it say we know why? No. Does it say we know how God works all things together for good? 
Now read it again, emphasizing that word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Do you believe that, Job, uh, that, that God loved Job? That's the obvious answer. Okay, based on what you know and based on the sermon today, do you believe that God had a plan for, for, for Job's life? Again, the obvious answer is yes. Now, let me ask a, a question that you might not have thought about. Do you believe that God loved Job's kids? Hmm. Do you believe that God had a plan for Job's kids' lives? It's not as obvious, but the answer is yes. I've, I've, I've often wondered, assuming that Job's kids' father's prayers were heard and that they were all believers, I don't know if you've wondered. I've, I've wondered sometimes about the conversation that might have taken place on that day when all of Job's kids were killed and went to heaven. I wonder what that conversation looked like with God. One of them might have said, hey, I, you know, the older one. God, I was just getting ready to retire. <laughs> What's the deal? I, you know, I... I didn't get to enjoy the, those, those days of retirement. Maybe another middle age. Lord, I, I didn't get to see my, my daughter get married. You think maybe that question went on in heaven? And it could go down to the youngest one. Lord, uh, I, I was just looking forward to being married. I, I, I don't know. But I have the sneaking suspicion because in heaven, we will have things revealed to us that whatever their questions were on earth that they might have been when they got to heaven, they did exactly what their dad did on earth. They fell down on their knees and they worshiped God and I think God revealed enough where they said, Oh, okay. Now I understand. You know what all this is about? Sovereignty of God, Ezra, uh, you know, telling the story of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and going home to rebuild the temple. You know what all this is about? It's about the gospel. And you know what I've been praying this week when I read that God stirred the heart of Cyrus? I've been praying, God, I don't know how this sermon is going to go. There's a lot here. I don't know how I'm going to get through it all. And, and I don't know what it's gonna, how it's going to land, but Lord, I do know one thing. 
If you can stir the heart of a king, you can stir the heart of young people, children, adults, to first of all, if they've never believed in Jesus Christ, they could be stirred to see their own sins against a holy God. See the wonder of Jesus Christ crucified. And see that they need to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. God, please stir. It's been my prayer this week, and I'm praying it now that God would stir in some hearts here so that there would be people who would respond to the gospel invitation and come to know Jesus Christ. And then for those of us who know him, that our hearts would be stirred with new encouragement about what's happening in your life and what's going on in the world around us. Father, I thank you that you give us such encouragement from your word. I'm also encouraged that um, your word says that it's out of stumbling lips that your truth comes. And so, Lord, I pray that at least um, scriptures that were used, the, uh, the truth of your word, that you have done a work in the lives of your people. And so, God... Help us now uh, to respond as our hearts are stirred and bless us as we go from this place to live out the implications that you really do have a plan for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.